Chapter One, Part One of The Monk, A Romance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. The Monk, A Romance by Matthew Gregory Lewis. Chapter One, Part One. Lord Angelo is precise, stands at a guard with envy, scarce confesses that his blood flows, or that his appetite is more to bread than stone. Measure for Measure Scarcely had the abbey bell tolled for five minutes, and already was the church of the Capuchins thronged with auditors. Do not encourage the idea that the crowd was assembled either from motives of piety or thirst of information. But very few were influenced by those reasons. And in a city where superstition reigns with such despotic sway as in Madrid, to seek for true devotion would be a fruitless attempt. The audience now assembled in the Capuchin church was collected by various causes, but all of them were foreign to the ostensible motive. The women came to show themselves, the men to see the women. Some were attracted by curiosity to hear an orator so celebrated. Some came because they had no better means of employing their time till the play began. Some from being assured that it would be impossible to find places in the church, and one half of Madrid was brought thither by expecting to meet the other half. The only persons truly anxious to hear the preacher were a few antiquated devotees, and half a dozen rival orators determined to find fault with and ridicule the discourse. As to the remainder of the audience, the sermon might have been omitted altogether, certainly without their being disappointed, and very probably without their perceiving the omission. Whatever was the occasion, it is at least certain that the Capuchin Church had never witnessed a more numerous assembly. Every corner was filled, every seat was occupied. The very statues which ornamented the long aisles were pressed into the service. Boys suspended themselves upon the wings of cherubims. St. Francis and St. Mark bore each a spectator on his shoulders, and St. Agatha found herself under the necessity of carrying double. The consequence was that, in spite of all their hurry and expedition, our two newcomers, on entering the church, looked round in vain for places. However, the old woman continued to move forwards. In vain were exclamations of displeasure vented against her from all sides. In vain was she addressed with, I assure you, senora, there are no places here. I beg, senora, that you will not crowd me so intolerably. Senora, you cannot pass this way. Bless me, how can people be so troublesome? The old woman was obstinate, and on she went. By dint of perseverance and two brawny arms, she made a passage through the crowd and managed to bustle herself into the very body of the church, at no great distance from the pulpit. Her companion had followed her with timidity and in silence, profiting by the exertions of her conductress. "'Holy Virgin!' exclaimed the old woman, in a tone of disappointment, while she threw a glance of inquiry round her. "'Holy Virgin! What heat! What a crowd! 
I wonder what can be the meaning of all this. I believe we must return. There is no such thing as a seat to be had, and nobody seems kind enough to accommodate us with theirs. This broad hint attracted the notice of two cavaliers who occupied stools on the right hand and were leaning their backs against the seventh column from the pulpit. Both were young and richly habited. Hearing this appeal to their politeness, pronounced in a female voice, they interrupted their conversation to look at the speaker. She had thrown up her veil in order to take a clearer look round the cathedral. Her hair was red and she squinted. The cavaliers turned round and renewed their conversation. "'By all means,' replied the old woman's companion. "'By all means, Leonella, let us return home immediately. The heat is excessive, and I am terrified at such a crowd.' These words were pronounced in a tone of unexampled sweetness. The cavaliers again broke off their discourse, but for this time they were not contented with looking up but started involuntarily from their seats and turned themselves towards the speaker. The voice came from a female, the delicacy and elegance of whose figure inspired the youths with the most lively curiosity to view the face to which it belonged. This satisfaction was denied them. Her features were hidden by a thick veil, but struggling through the crowd had deranged it sufficiently to discover a neck which, for symmetry and beauty, might have vied with the Medician Venus. It was of the most dazzling whiteness and received additional charms from being shaded by the tresses of her long fair hair, which descended in ringlets to her waist. Her figure was rather below than above the middle size. It was light and airy as that of an hamadryad. Her bosom was carefully veiled. Her dress was white. It was fastened by a blue sash, and just permitted to peep out from under it a little foot of the most delicate proportions. A chaplet of large grains hung upon her arm, and her face was covered with a veil of thick black gauze. Such was the female to whom the youngest of the cavaliers now offered his seat, while the other thought it necessary to pay the same attention to her companion. The old lady, with many expressions of gratitude, but without much difficulty, accepted the offer, and seated herself. The young one followed her example and made no other compliment than a simple and graceful reverence. Don Lorenzo, such was the cavalier's name whose seat she had accepted, placed himself near her, but first he whispered a few words in his friend's ear, who immediately took the hint and endeavored to draw off the old woman's attention from her lovely charge. "'You are doubtless lately arrived at Madrid?' said Lorenzo to his fair neighbor. "'It is impossible that such charms should have long remained unobserved, and had not this been your first public appearance, the envy of the women and adoration of the men would have rendered you already sufficiently remarkable.' He paused in expectation of an answer. As his speech did not absolutely require one, the lady did not open her lips. After a few moments, he resumed his discourse. "'Am I wrong in supposing you to be a stranger to Madrid?' The lady hesitated, and at last, in so low a voice as to be scarcely intelligible, she made shift to answer. "'No, senor.' "'Do you intend making a stay of any length?' 
Yes, senor. I should esteem myself fortunate were it in my power to contribute to making your abode agreeable. I am well known at Madrid, and my family has some interest at court. If I can be of any service, you cannot honor or oblige me more than by permitting me to be of use to you. Surely, said he to himself, she cannot answer that by a monosyllable. Now she must say something to me. Lorenzo was deceived, for the lady answered only by a bow. By this time he had discovered that his neighbor was not very conversable. But whether her silence proceeded from pride, discretion, timidity, or idiotism, he was still unable to decide. After a pause of some minutes, "'It is certainly from your being a stranger,' said he, "'and as yet unacquainted with our customs that you continue to wear your veil. Permit me to remove it.' At the same time he advanced his hand towards the gauze, the lady raised hers to prevent him. I never unveil in public, senor. And where is the harm, I pray you? interrupted her companion somewhat sharply. Do not you see that the other ladies have all laid their veils aside, to do honor, no doubt, to the holy place in which we are? I have taken off mine already, and surely if I expose my features to general observation, you have no cause to put yourself in such a wonderful alarm. Blessed Maria! Here is a fuss and a bustle about a chit's face. Come, come, child, uncover it. I warrant you that nobody will run away with it from you. Dear aunt, it is not the custom in Mercia. Mercia, indeed. Holy St. Barbara, what does that signify? You are always putting me in mind of that villainous province. If it is the custom in Madrid, that is all that we ought to mind and therefore I desire you to take off your veil immediately. Obey me this moment, Antonia, for you know I cannot bear contradiction. Her niece was silent, but made no further opposition to Don Lorenzo's efforts, who, armed with the aunt's sanction, hastened to remove the gauze. What a seraph's head presented itself to his admiration! Yet it was rather bewitching than beautiful. It was not so lovely from regularity of features as from sweetness and sensibility of countenance. The several parts of her face considered separately, many of them were far from handsome, but when examined together the whole was adorable. Her skin, though fair, was not entirely without freckles. Her eyes were not very large, nor their lashes particularly long, but then her lips were of the most rosy freshness. Her fair and undulating hair, confined by a simple riband, poured itself below her waist in a profusion of ringlets. Her neck was full and beautiful in the extreme. Her hand and arm were formed with the most perfect symmetry. Her mild blue eyes seemed in heaven of sweetness, and the crystal in which they moved sparkled with all the brilliance of diamonds. She appeared to be scarcely fifteen, an arch smile playing round her mouth declared her to be possessed of liveliness which excess of timidity at present repressed. She looked round her with a bashful glance, and whenever her eyes accidentally met Lorenzo's, she dropped them hastily upon her rosary. Her cheek was immediately suffused with blushes, and she began to tell her beads, though her manner evidently showed that she knew not what she was about. 
Lorenzo gazed upon her with mingled surprise and admiration, but the aunt thought it necessary to apologize for Antonia's mauvaise honte. "'Tis a young creature,' said she, "'who is totally ignorant of the world. She has been brought up in an old castle in Mercia, with no other society than her mother's, who, God help her, has no more sense, good soul, than is necessary to carry her soup to her mouth. Yet she is my own sister, both by father and mother. And has so little sense, said Don Cristobal, with feigned astonishment. How very extraordinary. Very true, senor. Is it not strange? However, such is the fact. And yet only to see the luck of some people. A young nobleman of the very first quality took it into his head that Elvira had some pretensions to beauty. As to pretensions, in truth she had always enough of them. But as to beauty, if I had only taken half the pains to set myself off which she did. But this is neither here nor there. As I was saying, senor, a young nobleman fell in love with her and married her unknown to his father. Their union remained a secret near three years, but at last it came to the ears of the old Marquise, who, as you may well suppose, was not much pleased with the intelligence. Away he posted, in all haste, to Cordoba, determined to seize Elvira and send her away to some place or other where she would never be heard of more. Holy St. Paul! How he stormed on, finding that she had escaped him, had joined her husband, and that they had embarked together for the Indies. He swore at us all, as if the evil spirit had possessed him. He threw my father into prison, as honest a painstaking shoemaker as any in Cordoba, and when he went away, he had the cruelty to take from us my sister's little boy, then scarcely two years old, and whom, in the abruptness of her flight, she had been obliged to leave behind her. I suppose that the poor little wretch met with bitter bad treatment from him, for in a few months after we received intelligence of his death. Why, this was a most terrible old fellow, senora. Oh, shocking! And a man so totally devoid of taste. Why, would you believe it, senor, when I attempted to pacify him, he cursed me for a witch, and wished that, to punish the count, my sister might become as ugly as myself. Ugly, indeed. I like him for that. Ridiculous, cried Don Cristobal. Doubtless the count would have thought himself fortunate had he been permitted to exchange the one sister for the other. Oh, Christ, senor, you are really too polite. However, I am heartily glad that the conde was of a different way of thinking. A mighty pretty piece of business, to be sure, Elvira has made of it. After broiling and stewing in the Indies for thirteen long years, her husband dies and she returns to Spain without a house to hide her head or money to procure her one. This Antonia was then but an infant and her only remaining child. She found that her father-in-law had married again, that he was irreconcilable to the conde, and that his second wife had produced him a son who was reported to be a very fine young man. The old Marquise refused to see my sister or her child, but sent her word that, on condition of never hearing any more of her, he would assign her a small pension, and she might live in an old castle which he possessed in Mercia. This had been the favorite habitation of his eldest son. But since his flight from Spain the old Marquise could not bear the place. 
but let it fall to ruin and confusion. My sister accepted the proposal. She retired to Mercia, and has remained there till within the last month. "'And what brings her now to Madrid?' inquired Don Lorenzo, whom admiration of the young Antonio compelled him to take a lively interest in the talkative old woman's narration. "'Alas, senor, her father-in-law being lately dead, the steward of his mercy and estates has refused to pay her pension any longer. With the design of supplicating his son to renew it, she has now come to Madrid, but I doubt that she might have saved herself the trouble. You young noblemen have always enough to do with your money, and are not very often disposed to throw it away upon old women. I advised my sister to send Antonia with her petition, but she would not hear of such a thing. She is so obstinate. Well, she will find herself the worse for not following my counsels. The girl has a good pretty face, and possibly might have done much. Ah, senora, interrupted Don Cristobal, counterfeiting a passionate air, if a pretty face will do the business, why has not your sister recourse to you? Oh, Jesus, my lord, I swear you quite overpower me with your gallantry. But I promise you that I am too well aware of the danger of such expeditions to trust myself in a young nobleman's power. No, no, I have as yet preserved my reputation without blemish or reproach, and I always knew how to keep the men at a proper distance. Of that, senora, I have not the least doubt. But permit me to ask you, have you then any aversion to matrimony? That is a home question. I cannot but confess that if an amiable cavalier was to present himself, here she intended to throw a tender and significant look upon Don Cristobal, but as she unluckily happened to squint most abominably, the glance fell directly upon his companion. Lorenzo took the compliment to himself and answered it by a profound bow. "'May I inquire,' said he, "'the name of the Marquise?' "'The Marquise de la Cisternas.' "'I know him intimately well. "'He is not at present in Madrid, "'but is expected here daily. "'He is one of the best of men, "'and if the lovely Antonia will permit me "'to be her advocate with him, "'I doubt not my being able to make "'a favorable report of her cause.' Antonia raised her blue eyes and silently thanked him for the offer by a smile of inexpressible sweetness. Leonela's satisfaction was much more loud and audible. Indeed, as her niece was generally silent in her company, she thought it incumbent upon her to talk enough for both. This she managed without difficulty, for she very seldom found herself deficient in words. "'Oh, senor,' she cried, you will lay our whole family under the most signal obligations. I accept your offer with all possible gratitude, and return you a thousand thanks for the generosity of your proposal. Antonia, why do you not speak, child? While the cavalier says all sorts of civil things to you, you sit like a statue, and never utter a syllable of thanks either bad, good, or indifferent. My dear aunt, I am very sensible that— "'Fie, niece! How often have I told you that you never should interrupt a person who is speaking? When did you ever know me do such a thing? Are these your Mercian manners? Mercy on me! I shall never be able to make this girl anything like a person of good breeding. But pray, senor,' she continued, addressing herself to Don Cristobal, 
inform me why such a crowd is assembled today in this cathedral. Can you possibly be ignorant that Ambrosio, abbot of this monastery, pronounces a sermon in this church every Thursday? All Madrid rings with his praises. As yet he has preached but thrice. But all who have heard him are so delighted with his eloquence that it is as difficult to obtain a place at church as at the first representation of a new comedy. His fame certainly must have reached your ears. Alas, senor, till yesterday I never had the good fortune to see Madrid, and at Cordoba we are so little informed of what is passing in the rest of the world that the name of Ambrosio has never been mentioned in its precincts. You will find it in every one's mouth at Madrid. He seems to have fascinated the inhabitants, and not having attended his sermons myself, I am astonished at the enthusiasm which he has excited. The adoration paid him both by young and old, by man and woman, is unexampled. The grandees load him with presents, their wives refuse to have any other confessor, and he is known through all the city by the name of the Man of Holiness. Undoubtedly, senor, he is of noble origin? That point still remains undecided. The late superior of the Capuchins found him while yet an infant at the abbey door. All attempts to discover who had left him there were vain, and the child himself could give no account of his parents. He was educated in the monastery, where he has remained ever since. He early showed a strong inclination for study and retirement, and as soon as he was of a proper age he pronounced his vows. No one has ever appeared to claim him, or clear up the mystery which conceals his birth, and the monks who find their account in the favor which is shown to their establishment from respect to him have not hesitated to publish that he is a present to them from the Virgin. In truth, the singular austerity of his life gives some countenance to the report. He is now thirty years old, every hour of which period has been passed in study, total seclusion from the world, and mortification of the flesh. Till these last three weeks, when he was chosen superior of the society to which he belongs, he had never been on the outside of the abbey walls. Even now he never quits them except on Thursdays, when he delivers a discourse in this cathedral which all Madrid assembles to hear. His knowledge is said to be the most profound, his eloquence the most persuasive. In the whole course of his life he has never been known to transgress a single rule of his order. The smallest stain is not to be discovered upon his character, and he is reported to be so strict an observer of chastity that he knows not in what consists the difference of man and woman. The common people, therefore, esteem him to be a saint. "'Does that make a saint?' inquired Antonia. "'Bless me, then, am I one.' "'Holy Saint Barbara!' exclaimed Leonella. "'What a question! Fie, child, fie!' These are not fit subjects for young women to handle. You should not seem to remember that there is such a thing as a man in the world, and you ought to imagine everybody to be of the same sex with yourself. I should like to see you give people to understand that you know that a man has no breasts, and no hips, and no... Luckily for Antonia's ignorance, which her aunt's lecture would soon have dispelled, an universal murmur through the church announced the preacher's arrival. Doña Leonela rose from her seat to take a better view of him, and Antonia followed her example. He was a man of noble port and commanding presence. 
his stature was lofty and his features uncommonly handsome his nose was aquiline his eyes large black and sparkling and his dark brows almost joined together his complexion was of a deep but clear brown study and watching had entirely deprived his cheek of color tranquillity reigned upon his smooth unwrinkled forehead and content expressed upon every feature seemed to announce the man equally unacquainted with cares and crimes he bowed himself with humility to the audience still there was a certain severity in his look and manner that inspired universal awe and few could sustain the glance of his eye at once fiery and penetrating such was ambrosio abbot of the capuchins and surnamed the man of holiness antonia while she gazed upon him eagerly felt a pleasure fluttering in her bosom which till then had been unknown to her and for which she in vain endeavoured to account she waited with impatience till the sermon should begin and when at length the friar spoke the sound of his voice seemed to penetrate into her very soul though no other of the spectators felt such violent sensations as did the young antonia yet every one listened with interest and emotion they who were insensible to religion's merits were still enchanted with ambrosio's oratory all found their attention irresistibly attracted while he spoke and the most profound silence reigned through the crowded aisles even lorenzo could not resist the charm he forgot that antonio was seated near him and listened to the preacher with undivided attention in language nervous clear and simple the monk expatiated on the beauties of religion he explained some abstruse parts of the sacred writings in a style that carried with it universal conviction his voice at once distinct and deep was fraught with all the terrors of the tempest while he inveighed against the vices of humanity and described the punishments reserved for them in a future state every hearer looked back upon his past offences and trembled the thunder seemed to roll whose bolt was destined to crush him and the abyss of eternal destruction to open before his feet but when ambrosio changing his theme spoke of the excellence of an unsullied conscience of the glorious prospect which eternity presented to the soul untainted with reproach and of the recompense which awaited it in the regions of everlasting glory his auditors felt their scattered spirits insensibly return they threw themselves with confidence upon the mercy of their judge they hung with delight upon the consoling words of the preacher and while his full voice swelled into melody they were transported to those happy regions which he painted to their imaginations in colour so brilliant and glowing the discourse was of considerable length yet when it concluded the audience grieved that it had not lasted longer though the monk had ceased to speak enthusiastic silence still prevailed through the church at length the charm gradually dissolving the general admiration was expressed in audible terms as ambrosio descended from the pulpit his auditors crowded round him loaded him with blessings threw themselves at his feet and kissed the hem of his garment he passed on slowly with his hands crossed devoutly upon his bosom to the door opening into the abbey chapel at which his monks waited to receive him he ascended the steps and then turning towards his followers addressed to them a few words of gratitude and exhortation 
While he spoke, his rosary, composed of large grains of amber, fell from his hand and dropped among the surrounding multitude. It was seized eagerly, and immediately divided amidst the spectators. Whoever became possessor of a bead preserved it as a sacred relic, and had it been the chaplet of thrice-blessed St. Francis himself, it could not have been disputed with greater vivacity. The abbot, smiling at their eagerness, pronounced his benediction and quitted the church while humility dwelt upon every feature. Dwelt she also in his heart? Antonia's eyes followed him with anxiety. As the door closed after him, it seemed to her as if she had lost some one essential to her happiness. A tear stole in silence down her cheek. "'He is separated from the world,' said she to herself. "'Perhaps I shall never see him more.' As she wiped away the tear, Lorenzo observed her action. "'Are you satisfied with our orator?' said he. "'Or do you think that Madrid overrates his talents?' Antonia's heart was so filled with admiration for the monk that she eagerly seized the opportunity of speaking of him. Besides, as she now no longer considered Lorenzo as an absolute stranger, she was less embarrassed by her excessive timidity. "'Oh, he far exceeds all my expectations,' answered she. "'Till this moment I had no idea of the powers of eloquence. But when he spoke, his voice inspired me with such interest, such esteem, I might almost say such affection for him, that I am myself astonished at the acuteness of my feelings. Lorenzo smiled at the strength of her expressions. "'You are young and just entering into life,' said he. "'Your heart, new to the world and full of warmth and sensibility, receives its first impressions with eagerness. Artless yourself, you suspect not others of deceit, and viewing the world through the medium of your own truth and innocence, you fancy all who surround you to deserve your confidence and esteem. What pity that these gay visions must soon be dissipated! What pity that you must soon discover the baseness of mankind and guard against your fellow-creatures as against your foes! Alas, senor, replied Antonia, the misfortunes of my parents have already placed before me but too many sad examples of the perfidy of the world. Yet surely in the present instance the warmth of sympathy cannot have deceived me. In the present instance I allow that it has not. Ambrosio's character is perfectly without reproach, and a man who has passed the whole of his life within the walls of a convent cannot have found the opportunity to be guilty, even were he possessed of the inclination. But now, when obliged by the duties of his situation, he must enter occasionally into the world and be thrown into the way of temptation. It is now that it behooves him to show the brilliance of his virtue. The trial is dangerous. He is just at that period of life when the passions are most vigorous, unbridled, and despotic. His established reputation will mark him out to seduction as an illustrious victim. Novelty will give additional charms to the allurements of pleasure and even the talents with which nature has endowed him will contribute to his ruin by facilitating the means of obtaining his object very few would return victorious from a contest so severe ah surely ambrosio will be one of those few of that i have myself no doubt 
By all accounts, he is an exception to mankind in general, and envy would seek in vain for a blot upon his character. Senor, you delight me by this assurance. It encourages me to indulge my prepossession in his favor, and you know not with what pain I should have repressed the sentiment. Ah, dearest aunt, entreat my mother to choose him for our confessor. I entreat her, replied Leonela. I promise you that I shall do no such thing. I do not like this same Ambrosio in the least. He has a look of severity about him that made me tremble from head to foot. Were he my confessor, I should never have the courage to avow one half of my picadillos, and then I should be in a rare condition. I never saw such a stern-looking mortal, and hope that I never shall see such another. His description of the devil, God bless us, almost terrified me out of my wits, and when he spoke about sinners, he seemed as if he was ready to eat them. You are right, senora, answered Don Cristobal. Too great severity is said to be Ambrosio's only fault. Exempted himself from human feelings, he is not sufficiently indulgent to those of others, and though strictly just and disinterested in his decisions, his government of the monks has already shown some proofs of his inflexibility. But the crowd is nearly dissipated. Will you permit us to attend you home? Oh, Christ, senor, exclaimed Leonela, affecting to blush. I would not suffer such a thing for the universe. If I came home attended by so gallant a cavalier, my sister is so scrupulous that she would read me an hour's lecture, and I should never hear the last of it. Besides, I rather wish you not to make your proposals just at present. My proposals? I assure you, senora. Oh, senor, I believe that your assurances of impatience are all very true, but really I must desire a little respite. It would not be quite so delicate in me to accept your hand at first sight. Accept my hand? As I hope to live and breathe. Oh, dear senor, press me no further. If you love me, I shall consider your obedience as a proof of your affection. You shall hear from me to-morrow. And so, farewell. But pray, cavaliers, may I not inquire your names? My friends, replied Lorenzo, is the Conde d'Osorio, and mine, Lorenzo de Medina. Tis sufficient. Well, Don Lorenzo, I shall acquaint my sister with your obliging offer, and let you know the result with all expedition. Where may I send to you? I am always to be found at the Medina Palace. You may depend upon hearing from me. Farewell, cavaliers. Señor Conde, let me entreat you to moderate the excessive ardor of your passion. However, to prove that I am not displeased with you, and prevent your abandoning yourself to despair, receive this mark of my affection, and sometimes bestow a thought upon the absent Leonella. As she said this, she extended a lean and wrinkled hand, which her supposed admirer kissed with such sorry grace and constraint so evident that Lorenzo, with difficulty, repressed his inclination to laugh. Leonella then hastened to quit the church. The lovely Antonia followed her in silence, but when she reached the porch, she turned involuntarily and cast back her eyes towards Lorenzo. He bowed to her, as bidding her farewell, 
she returned the compliment and hastily withdrew. So, Lorenzo, said Don Cristobal as soon as they were alone, you have procured me an agreeable intrigue. To favor your designs upon Antonia, I obligingly make a few civil speeches which mean nothing to the aunt, and at the end of an hour I find myself upon the brink of matrimony. How will you reward me for having suffered so grievously for your sake? What can repay me for having kissed the leathern paw of that confounded old witch? Diavolo! She has left such a scent upon my lips that I shall smell of garlic for this month to come. As I pass along the Prado, I shall be taken for a walking omelet or some large onion running to seed. I confess, my poor Count, replied Lorenzo, that your service has been attended with danger. Yet am I so far from supposing it to be past all endurance that I shall probably solicit you to carry on your amour still further. From that petition I conclude that the little Antonia has made some impression upon you? I cannot express to you how much I am charmed with her. Since my father's death, my uncle, the Duke de Medina, has signified to me his wishes to see me married. I have till now eluded his hints and refused to understand them, but what I have seen this evening. Well, what have you seen this evening? Why, surely, Don Lorenzo, you cannot be mad enough to think of making a wife out of this granddaughter of as honest a painstaking shoemaker as any in Cordoba. You forget that she is also the granddaughter of the late Marquis de las Cisternas. But without disputing about birth and titles, I must assure you that I never beheld a woman so interesting as Antonia. Very possibly, but you cannot mean to marry her. Why not, my dear Conde? I shall have wealth enough for both of us, and you know that my uncle thinks liberally upon the subject. From what I have seen of Ramon de las Cisternas, I am certain that he will readily acknowledge Antonia for his niece. Her birth, therefore, will be no objection to my offering her my hand. I should be a villain could I think of her on any other terms than marriage, and in truth she seems possessed of every quality requisite to make me happy in a wife— young lovely gentle sensible sensible why she said nothing but yes and no she did not say much more i must confess but then she always said yes or no in the right place did she so oh you most obedient that is using a right lover's argument and i dare dispute no longer with so profound a casuist suppose we adjourn to the comedy it is out of my power. I only arrived last night at Madrid, and have not yet had an opportunity of seeing my sister. You know that her convent is in this street, and I was going thither when the crowd which I saw thronging into this church excited my curiosity to know what was the matter. I shall now pursue my first intention, and probably pass the evening with my sister at the parlor grate. Your sister in a convent, say you? Oh, very true. I had forgotten. And how does Doña Agnes? I am amazed, Don Lorenzo, how you could possibly think of immuring so charming a girl within the walls of a cloister. I think of it, Don Cristobal? How can you suspect me of such barbarity? You are conscious that she took the veil by her own desire, and that particular circumstances made her wish for a seclusion from the world. 
I used every means in my power to induce her to change her resolution. The endeavor was fruitless, and I lost a sister. The luckier fellow you. I think, Lorenzo, you were a considerable gainer by that loss. If I remember right, Doña Agnes had a portion of ten thousand pistoles, half of which reverted to your lordship. By St. Iago, I wish that I had fifty sisters in the same predicament. I should consent to losing them every soul without much heart-burning. How, Conde? said Lorenzo in an angry voice. Do you suppose me base enough to have influenced my sister's retirement? Do you suppose that the despicable wish to make myself master of her fortune could— Admirable! Courage, Don Lorenzo. Now the man is all in a blaze. God grant that Antonia may soften that fiery temper, or we shall certainly cut each other's throat before the month is over. However, to prevent such a tragical catastrophe for the present, I shall make a retreat and leave you master of the field. Farewell, my knight of Mount Etna. Moderate that inflammable disposition, and remember that, whenever it is necessary to make love to yonder Harridan, you may reckon upon my services. He said, and darted out of the cathedral. How wild-brained, said Lorenzo, with so excellent an heart, what pity that he possesses so little solidity of judgment. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista